Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today we'll be reading from the book of Malachi, uh, verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. It's going to be located on pages 467 and 468 in the blue Bibles located in your seat back. If you do not have a Bible, uh, please feel free to take one of these as a gift from us here at Northridge Life. Hear the word of the Lord. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of immense blessing, God. We sang about you just a moment ago as the God from whom all blessings flow. We're reminded of James's promise where he says, that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning. And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you, God, that your, your intention in Christ was to bless us, was to pour out abundance upon us, God. God, we have been a race of people that have sought abundance since the fall in the garden. But Lord, we've sought it in things that were just silly and foolish and destructive. But Lord, you have promised to give us real life and that abundantly. And so for that, we thank you. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to take a fresh look at your word and to understand it and believe it and be filled with joy because of it. I pray that we would be challenged to repentance, Lord. I pray that we would delight in the God of our salvation, the God of our blessing. Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally equip me to say what you want to say, nothing more and nothing less. And I ask all this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now, before we get started, before we do anything, before we go any further, I want everybody to take a deep breath. Go like this. Okay, about half of you did that. And the reason I ask you to do that is because I imagine, I've been doing this a long time, and I imagine as the text was read this morning, and you heard where we were going this morning, that there were a number of distinct reactions among this congregation. Some of you quite frankly, paid very little attention 
to what was said. You tend to be generally apathetic to the warnings of Scripture. Others were concerned as you considered that your soul, your very soul, might be threatened by the curse that's promised in this text. And, and, and you were concerned because you were looking at your own pathetic performance and honoring God with your financial gifts. And it says, well, it says it right there. It's God's word. It says, I'm cursed with a curse. And then there are probably at least a handful of others of you. Uh, there may be some of you who, maybe this is your first time here, and, and you're not, you don't know how things usually go. And, and, and maybe you were just a little offended. Maybe you were just a little annoyed by my choice of text and because you thought I, I played right into your assumptions that preachers like me are only preoccupied with money and how we might manipulate our congregations into giving more and more and more. So again, if you fall under any of those three categories, take a deep breath. Buckle your seatbelt on the roller coaster, go for a ride with me, and let's see where we wind up. Because I have to admit that almost all the messages, and I have heard plenty in my lifetime from this text, were not usually comforting to me. They fell under categories of either making false promises or being heavy-handed. Um, is that? Well, let me ask you an honest question. Is that the fault of the text? Help me out. Of course not. God's word is perfect. These words, however, did not tend to comfort me. Way more often, they stood as only an accusation against me. It's like God's finger was pointed directly at me as he announced his verdict that I had been found guilty of robbing him. I might have given from time to time, you know, my own time or resources to God, but had I given enough? Because how do you assign an amount that's sufficient to honor a God who didn't withhold anything from us, not even his own son? For my benefit, he gave everything, even his own son. And so perhaps when we're trying to decide how do we work our way through this text and we, we figure out what does this mean for us, we, we might take a clue from the word tithe which I'm sure most, if not all of you, know here that in Hebrew that word means the tenth part or ten percent. And perhaps this leads me to, to know that what God is after is my faithful contribution of ten percent of my earnings, ten percent of my resources, so that I will not be regarded as a thief before his righteous judgment. But here's the problem. Malachi tells me that I have robbed God in tithes and contributions. Now, we tend to read scriptures, I say this all the time, through the eyes of 21st century Americans. This, uh, this contribution is sometimes in your Bibles translated as offerings. If we take strict guidance from the Old Testament law, we will find that the tithe represents one small facet of recommended contributions. In fact, the Jews under the Mosaic law were commanded to give three separate tithes. Did you know that? And it constituted about 23% of their annual income. Now, in addition to this, God 
directed them to frequently make free will contributions to charitable causes for the poor or for offerings of gratitude and offerings for needs of the Levitical ministry. Furthermore, they had to take their own animals and sacrifice them for guilt offerings and sin offerings, etc. And so there was a lot more to uh, to what God is saying through the prophet Malachi than just a, a, a slice of 10% off their income. Now, it would seem from this that from reading Malachi 3, if what I'm saying is true, and you can look it up, it is true, that, that if this represents a biblical standard, then anyone who gives 10% of their income falls significantly short of the standard that Malachi is presenting. Now, take a deep breath. It's gonna, I, I, there's so much tension right now. I can, it's palpable. I could cut it with a knife. It's okay. Just stay with me. In other words, if we look to Malachi alone for direction on how to please God with our giving, we have to start coughing up 30 or 40 percent of our income, or we will be deemed by God, according to Malachi, a robber and a thief. And this becomes a heavier weight when we consider that the penalty for our lack of generosity, according to Malachi, is that we are under a curse. Although Malachi doesn't specify the nature of the curse here in his passage, we can discover the jeopardy in which we may exist by looking at Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is the premier chapter in the Old Testament on blessings and curses. It goes on forever. It talks about all the blessings for those who would obey God's word and the, and the curses for those who disobey it. it very early in the, in the text, in the portion that talks about curses, he says this in Deuteronomy 28, 29, You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall only be oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, and it shall not be restored to you. Your sheep will be given to your enemies, and there shall be no one to help you. So the curse God promises in the premier biblical text on curses points to robbery, utter financial devastation, ruin, constant lack, extreme loss. And though God was extremely patient with his people, we see this cycle of havoc played out repeatedly when Israel was unfaithful to their covenant with with God. All of this culminated in the final destruction of the nation by Rome in AD 70, which we talked about several weeks ago. There are others here, however, that you have read these words and you have put faith in these words in in both the promise of curse and the promise of blessing. And so you believed them, you've known them. and, And because of this verse, you have been faithful givers for years and you're motivated by the belief that if you give god will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need and that he'll rebuke the devourer for you but on the basis of your giving you've put so much stock in these words that you're scared not to give 
You imagine a terrible fate is awaiting you if you fail in your, in your giving, your tithing by the tiniest fraction. But what I wonder is if a closer examination of our hearts would reveal that we're motivated here by a fear of a curse more than a faith in the promise of God. We would do well to consider whether our determination to avoid God's penalty corresponds well to our belief in the empowering grace of God. Now, I feel like that landed flat. I'm not looking for, you know, just affirmation. I want you to hear it. So I'm going to say it again. We would do well to consider whether our determination to avoid God's penalty corresponds well with our stated belief in the empowering grace of God, that grace of God that enables us to be pleasing to God. Not because of anything we can do or because of anything we have done, but only because your life is hidden with God in Christ, according to the book of Colossians. As we read the words of Malachi that Mike read for us today. And didn't he do a great job? I, I told him I wanted him to start reading scripture because, man, I would kill for that voice. Not literally. Don't be scared. Uh, um, but I, I wish I had that deep baritone voice um, to preach with. But as we read the words of Malachi, there are three things we have to take under consideration. You can't just read it on the surface and, and not understand what you're reading. First thing we have to understand is under what covenant were these words written. Second, we have to understand under what covenant do you and I as believers exist. And thirdly, we need to understand, because this is serious language, and we all just admitted that God means what he says, his word is perfect, his word is perfectly true. We have to understand what is our relation to the curses of Scripture. What is our relation to those things? When curses are mentioned, where do we fall in relation to those scriptures? Well, let's start with the first one. Malachi 3, 8 through 12 was written at the very tail end of the Old Covenant Revelation. After all the 12 tribes of Israel had been defeated, they'd been scattered, they'd been exiled by Assyria and Babylon, and despite God's relentless patience and his constant warnings, they had continued to play the harlot with false gods of foreign nations. And because of this, they had experienced every facet of the dozens of curses in Deuteronomy 28. Look it up and you'll find somewhere in history where God kept his word to them that if they broke his covenant, they would suffer these curses. And, And so their covenant unfaithfulness unleashed a flood of curses upon them. And Malachi represents the final call of God to the Jews to repent and remember the covenant before he goes absolutely silent for four centuries before the advent of the Messiah in Bethlehem. He goes totally quiet. And the Jews receiving this message were still under the terms of the covenant that was delivered on Mount Sinai. And what were those terms? Ezekiel 20.13 tells us very clearly, They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which, here's the terms, if a, if a person does them, he shall live. So what does that imply that if they don't do them will happen? Jesus says, in the book, or the, God says in the book of Ezekiel also, The soul that sins will die. 
In the day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, you will die. But but his statutes were rejected, by which if a person does them, he will live. The covenant that they were under, the Jews were under, operated on the principle taken right from Deuteronomy 28 of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. It was rooted in the pursuit of perfect righteousness. Be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus said. And for their inevitable failures, God mercifully gave them an elaborate system of sacrifices so they might be reconciled to God. And so in Leviticus 11.45, God himself lays out this standard with these words. For I am the Lord who who, uh, brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. In other words, you have to acknowledge, Israel, that I purchased you, you belong to me. And so here's my standard. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, there's nobody in here, there's nobody out there, that has the smallest, minutest trace of holiness outside of Jesus Christ. Because this holiness means that we achieve this holiness through perfect obedience to God's law. And James tells us that those who have failed in one point of God's law have failed in all of it. You may be infinitely more moral than your neighbor, but if you are not perfectly moral, you are still under condemnation. For fallen humanity, keeping God's law is about as reasonable as building a ladder to Saturn. The distance is too great, the cost is too high, and therefore Paul tells us the purpose of God in placing us under such a law. He didn't just say, you know, put a, a, you know, the goal 50 feet over us and said, jump and reach it. No, listen, this is so beautiful. Why God designed a law that was impossible to, for us to reach. He said it in this, Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. Other texts say, other translations say our schoolmaster. The law was our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Did you see what just happened in that verse? The transaction used to be this. Obey perfectly and you'll be blessed. Now, It's have faith in Christ, and you'll be perfectly justified. How many of you like deal B better than deal A? Raise your hands. I love deal B. I love it. Now that faith has come, verse 25, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God. Through faith. Oh, my goodness. So you don't have to like try to slave for God and try to try to you know live under his whip fearing the 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 dropping of his judgment your sons your daughters now because of what Christ has done. And the reason I wanted to talk to you about this and about this verse in particular is cuz so many of us live under this idea that the other shoe is going to drop because we're not performing well. Well, guess what? For the fourth time, take a deep breath because your performance was done perfectly by Jesus for you. It's not on your shoulders anymore. 
In other words, blessings don't come to us because of perfect obedience to the law. That is impossible. It's a pipe dream. Stop trying. The law showed us how incapable we are of pleasing God in ourselves. None of us have come close to perfect fulfillment of even one law, let alone the whole body of what God commanded on Sinai. Instead, blessings now abound to us because we're united by faith to Christ. Somebody say amen or I'm going to blow up in here. Your blessings are coming to you because you're united to Christ. Not because your record is clean. Because guess what? It ain't. Christ fulfilled the entirety of God's law. Every jot and tittle of it. And he did it for us and he did it perfectly. And so we're no longer under our legal guardian. We're no longer in handcuffs. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And the terms of the new covenant are radically different than those of the old. While we used to live under the heavy burden, the impossible burden of do this and be blessed, we now know the experience and know the freedom of believe and be saved and be blessed. The currency of your works, listen carefully, the currency of your works is absolutely worthless in the new covenant. Completely, totally worthless. So if we're blessed by faith in Christ, what is our relation to verses like Malachi 3, which threaten curses upon us? Well, here it is. We read them, and we're moved to solemn, spirit-filled worship. Because we acknowledge that the burden that these verses represent has been lifted from our shoulders by Christ for all of those who believe. All of them. Galatians 3 puts this beautifully. Now remember, our key word this morning is curse. You're under a curse. If you haven't shelled out your 30 or 40% and, and, and met all the requirements of God in Malachi 3, you're under a curse. But listen to what Galatians 3 says, as opposed to Malachi 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse... Of the law. Now you can take a deep breath. He has redeemed. What is Malachi 3? It's the curse of the law. Don't do this and you are in trouble. But Christ came and he redeemed us from the curse of the law. And you know how he did it? He did it by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus... The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles and so that we might receive the promised spirit of faith, through faith. We're redeemed from the curse of the law, including Malachi's. On the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the full penalty of every curse justly deserved by us as the wrath of God and the experience of hell itself come raining down from heaven upon his holy body. The righteous was dying for the unrighteous. The law keeper was dying for the law breakers. Through the cross, the blessing that belonged to Christ as the firstborn son of God was transferred to us. 
Not because of our performance or our works, but because of God's benevolent grace towards guilty sinners, expressed in his good pleasure to save some to the praise of his glorious grace. And this, how many of you here, raise your hand if you were here last week in my message. Well, the rest of you may not get this connection, but what I'm talking about is the honey in the hands of Jesus that I spoke about last week. It's the through the slaying of the, the, the lion that was represented by the, the devil and by the law and death. By slaying all those things, he offers us food in his own body and blood. He offers us unlimited grace and endless life that is completely undeserved by us. But it's given to us without condition and without price to those who will only believe. So does this mean... Everybody's like, okay, good, I'll never give another nickel. Hold on just a second. Does this mean that we're released from the obligation to give because Christ has removed the curse from us? Are we just released from that burden? Are we free to do with as we please with our resources without fear or condemnation or curse? Ready to be surprised? That's exactly what it means. That's exactly what it means. But... 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I want you to notice three things in this text. Are you free to do with what you want because of Christ? Absolutely. But there are indicators that grace is working in a man or a woman. There are things that show that God's work is doing. So there's an expectation that believers will decide in their hearts to give. But notice, notice here the the motivation's coming from. It's not coming from the law anymore. It's not coming from Malachi 3. It's coming from their hearts. Why? Because who dwells in their hearts? The Holy Spirit dwells in their hearts. And then in their their hearts, they'll decide to give. That's what Paul's saying. Each man must give what he has decided in his heart. And why why do we give? There's three reasons. One, because we're grateful. Second, because we're becoming more like Jesus. And thirdly, because we do not store our treasures on earth where moth and rust and thieves corrupt and break in and steal, but we restore them in a heavenly bank. We give because we're grateful for the generosity that God has shown towards us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Raise your hand I I, I know I've been having you raise your hands a lot, but I'm serious. Raise your hand if you are confident that you have Christ. Raise your hand. Hold it up. Don't put it down yet. Hold it up. Raise your hand. Okay. I'm so glad to see so many of you. If you have Christ, whether this feels like your experience, whether it looks like your experience, you have everything. Now, maybe two, maybe three of you believe that. But if you have Christ, God has freely given you all things.
So we don't give to get God to be gracious to us. We don't toss a $20 bill in the plate so that God will open the windows of heaven to us, but we, we give freely because we recognize that he's already been gracious to us. The only logical worship response is to reflect that generosity and give freely and gratefully and thankfully. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus who hid in the tree to see Jesus and Jesus called him down when Christ forgave him of his many sins of greed and thievery? What was his response? It was to open up his treasuries and give freely. This man who had tried to steal a nickel out of every pocket was now giving it all away because Christ had given him something far better. Nothing indicates genuine Christianity much like selfless generosity. Christians are givers. They're not commanded to be givers. They just are givers. Not just professors of fine points of theology. Christians aren't just moralists. This identity of givers isn't just financial. This isn't just, a, like I said, a manipulation that gets you to give more. Listen to me. It's not financial. It's not only financial. It's all-encompassing. Christians are very liberal and free with their time. They give away their prayers to people who are in need. They will shed tears over a lost soul generously. They share their love for people who are lost and for people who are in the body of Christ. And yes, they share their money and their resources. But second, we give also because we're becoming more like Jesus. Is there anybody here foolish enough to argue that Jesus is not the premier giver? What has Jesus withheld from us? What eternally beneficial thing have you ever been denied by him? Ever. Now, if you can answer... By pointing to anything at all, well, I prayed this prayer, Jesus didn't answer it. Listen, if if that's your attitude, you don't understand the gospel at all. Jesus promises us everything we truly need. Listen to how Peter puts it. He says in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It is Jesus' generosity that enables us also to be generous in every aspect of our lives. We've moved from the obligation of Malachi 3 to the freedom of Galatians 3. We're free to give. I'm not obligated to anything. I'm obligated out of, of, genera- of, of gratitude and thankfulness to Jesus. I'm free to give because Christ already gave everything. Think of the most, seriously, this is a real exercise. Think of the most Christ-like people you've ever known. Whether you know them now, knew them sometime in the past, maybe it was a grandparent, a pastor, just a friend at work. Think of that, seriously, get them in your head, the most godly person you've ever known. And those who have set the absolute finest example of Christian piety for you, well, I guarantee you as you're remembering their faces that there isn't a stingy person among your memories of the people that you're thinking of. There's not one. I, I guarantee you that 
that in, in your memories of them and what made, uh, helped you to understand them as a godly Christ-like person, the giving was part of that. Not what they contributed to the church or to some ministry, probably what they contributed to you and their generosity. Their generosity was at least part of what you saw of Christ in them. So, if you feel cheated because of what you didn't receive from the Lord, you may need to examine whether you really trust His goodness, whether you really rely on the sufficiency of His grace. Perhaps you imagine that you have better knowledge than He does about what's best for you and for your eternal welfare. Perhaps your treasures are all earthbound and therefore destined to fail and destined to fade away. It's amazing how the awareness of heavenly treasure, which includes an endless supply of grace, total forgiveness, promise of eternal life, unbroken fellowship with God, etc., 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 both now and in the future, how the consideration of those things will cause you to hold the things of this life with an open hand, ready to give and to share. But when we fight to hold on to a maximum of this world's stuff, we expose ourselves as trying to live in two opposing realities. We imagine ourselves to be citizens of heaven, but upon close examination, we find that we're more fully invested in this world. But grace gives us the freedom to cheerfully give with the promise that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, it's been pointed out so many times by many preachers that the word cheerful isn't indicating pleasantly willing, okay, I'll do it. No, it means to, to be giving with hilarity. To be, it means to be overcome with joy, to be participating in an act of loving sacrifice for the glory of God. Do you see how the new covenant, this is my whole point of this message, do you see how the new covenant casts Malachi 3 in a whole new light? And furthermore, aren't you glad it does? You're not threatened with a curse if you don't give. Rather, you're promised abundant joy when you do. When you rely on the grace of God and and His promises to provide for all your temporal and eternal needs, you can give freely, not just with a smile, but with tears of laughter rolling down your face. Threatenings, in the Word of God, are for unbelievers. They're for covenant forsakers. Promises of blessings are the inheritance of those who believe. Under which one will you live? Will you fear the lion who executes God's just wrath against you? Or will you happily take honey from his hands and give it freely to those around you? Surely there's some of you here today that are withholding from God Because you're way more aware of your need than his supply. Some of you, on the other hand, give consistently because you're bound by fear of what will happen if you don't. But I say to both groups, resolve today to trust in God's goodness and the blessing that he's promised us in Christ by faith. Believe that he will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. Open your heart to believe who he has revealed himself to be. And who is that? He's revealed himself to be a generous, long-suffering, merciful, and abundantly supplying God. 
And after you open your heart to believe all these marvelous truths, open your wallet, open your purse, and worship him with your resources. Worship him this week with your time. Find those who are hurting and worship him with the giving of compassion. There is nothing that you give to God that he won't give back multiplied. Now, that does not mean give money to get money. What it means is that when you give to God, he promises a return, but he promises that you will have what you need and have it in abundance. So let's think about that. If winning the lottery would wreck your life as it does so many people's lives, then God in his mercy may instead, for your generosity, not give you winning lottery numbers, but give you more faith or give you more patience or give you discipline. The Bible says that the Lord loves the one he disciplines or he might give you encouragement that you desperately need, but he knows what you need and he's promised that he'll never leave you or forsake you. If you'll stand with me, I just want to read this scripture over you. Just feel like having you stand for this. Because I want you to engage with it. I want you to believe this passage of scripture. Look at its words and be blown away by the promise of God in the Psalms. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-five. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. He, God, is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Thank you for your generous supply that, that has began before eternity and is, and is continuing to this day. And Lord, if we would open our eyes, we would see more and more evidence of how you're providing for us, protecting us, sanctifying us, growing us, encouraging us, strengthening us, comforting us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would not be a people under grace who fear curses, Lord, but we would be a people who um, are so free, Lord, that we give freely, Lord, in every aspect, financially, compassion, and compassion, all of the ways that we give and prayers and all the things we mentioned, Lord, I pray that we would give in those ways freely and generously. And so we thank you for this, God. Do a work by your Holy Spirit with these words and change our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we uh, close the service this uh, morning, you guys can be seated. We're going to uh, take our second quarter missions offering, um, which is something that we see as a tremendous privilege that we get to do. Um, We have this morning... Um, a need to raise just over $3,000 so that we can uh, fulfill um, our giving to our missionaries that we've promised them. That's a, that's a large amount, but we're trusting that the Lord will be at work in each one of us to give generously this morning so that we can um, provide our missionaries with everything they need to be continuing the work that the Lord has called them to do. Um, every, every single dollar that we collect will go directly um, to our missionaries, anything that we collect above and beyond will just go into our uh, next quarter offering. Um, and so I want to encourage you this morning um, to give with a generous heart. Um, the missionaries we support 
are Wes White, Wes and Jan White in East Africa. Wes travels all over East Africa, and he, he, he teaches and trains pastors, local pastors there, to be able to biblically preach and teach the Word of God to their congregations um, all over East Africa. We support Scott and Leslie Walt, who are ministering in Austria and Europe. Um, and, and Western Europe is a place with many, many religious structures and religious traditions, uh, but is absolutely void of the gospel. Uh, they're doing a great work there um, to bring the gospel to the lost in, in Europe. We support Ryan Denton, who, who works here locally, who's a church planner and evangelist. Um, he's planted a church here in Lubbock, uh, another one in Clovis, um, and he faithfully preaches the gospel at Texas Tech and other places uh, around the city, um, and is a great example to all of us in the proclamation of the gospel to those who are lost. And then we support Heart Cry Missions as well, which um, which serves missionaries who are ministering in places where um, it's dangerous, uh, illegal to preach the gospel openly. Um, and that's a tremendous work as well that we're excited to get to participate in. So um, I'm going to ask our um, our ushers if they would come and prepare to pass the baskets. Um, if you're like me and you don't carry cash or a checkbook, you can always, as always, you can give online. Um, you can give on our website. You can give through the, the Church Center app. Um, but we just ask you that you would um, joyfully and generously participate um, as we uh, support our missionaries and as we partner with our missionaries in the work that they're doing internationally and locally. So let me let me pray over and bless this offering, and then we will we'll take it together. Father, it's it, it truly is a privilege um, that you in, include us and you allow us to just play a small part in the work that you're doing. Um, here in Lubbock and also all over the world, Lord. And we pray that um, you would um, help us, Lord, to have generous hearts this morning. There, there are so many things we can give our money to, put our money towards, Lord. But there's nothing, there's nothing better. There's no, there's no better investment than, um, Lord, giving into your kingdom and supporting these missionaries who are doing true gospel work and who've been doing it faithfully for many, many years. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to participate in that. We ask, Lord, that you would um, bless this offering. Lord, we ask that you would provide for our missionaries everything that they need, that they would have no lack whatsoever. And we, we pray and ask, Lord, that they would be encouraged and blessed through this offering. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys would stand with me. Let me read a benediction over you. From 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, if you would put your hands in a receiving position. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.